Hi, and welcome to The Sustainable Century, where we explore with experts, with leaders, activists, communities of interest, mothers, fathers, and kids, how to buy, how to work, and how to invest for happier lives and a healthier planet. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. Hi, we're with Claire Kellaway. Uh, she's the editor and writer, uh, the main writer and a great writer for Food and Power, which reports on economic consolidation and monopolization in the food and agricultural industry in the United States and other parts of the world. Welcome, Claire. Hey, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to speaking with you since the first time I read one of your great articles in, in Food and Power. I, I wanted to ask you about the mission of Food and Power. We'll do that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I wanted to start by asking you about the breadth of reporting you do. I mean, you, you move between tech and the supermarket leading to discriminatory pricing, perhaps uh, Trump's policies and how they favor big meat packers over farmers, no surprise there, or how uh, Cory Booker led bill in the Senate uh, proposes to actually get rid of factory farms. That would be a wonderful thing in my mind. But how did you get to the place where you could write about such diverse themes? Yeah, I mean, I think working with, you know, corporate corruption and influence in food and agriculture, it's really uh, puts a lens on how I see all different kinds of issues. Um, it just really teaches you to look for different things and ask different kinds of questions um, that you then can apply to the whole food system, which, you know, as, yeah, you went through is very diverse, covers a huge range of really interesting topics. Um, and I guess I just learned about it from trying to be as close to people who are actually participating in the food system as I can, you know, talking with farmers, talking with small business owners, with grocery, you know, workers, grocery store owners. Um, and before this job, I briefly worked in the food industry myself doing local food purchasing for, uh, colleges and universities. Um, yeah. And so those experiences sort of, again, really gave me a firsthand view into trying to, you know, improve local sourcing, trying right. to have a more sustainable food system. Um, and yeah, introduced me to the, the whole food chain, as it were. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people, you know, it, as we were talking before we got rolling today, a lot of people uh, misunderstand the complexity, shall we say, of the mm -hmm. whole food and agricultural system. I mean, certainly it is very complex and covers a lot of different ranges. And, and you know, increasingly, and we've seen this particularly intensify over the last, say, 30 years, uh, bigger and bigger and bigger actors are kind of taken over. I guess that's the monopoly side of things. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, in my work in the private sector, trying to, yeah, make food more sustainable or uh, may have, you know, wealth recirculate through more communities, I really sort of saw how few players controlled a lot of the way food, you know, is grown and moves. Um, and it's startling, yeah, the amount of power that's held within the hands of a few people uh, or a few corporations. <laughs> was it was it was um, it one of your was it one of your articles that was looking at um, 
three or four big companies, uh, you know, dominated the food supply uh, chain to uh, educational and institutional uh, markets like hospitals and, and whatnot. Was that yours? Yes. Yes. That's definitely uh, an area I know. I know. Well, yeah, there are uh, three sort of big food service management companies that have, yeah, 75% of all contracts with hospitals, universities, um, public school, you know, is still sometimes run in-house more so than um, other industries. But yeah, they have some pretty concerning ties to, to big corporations in terms of relying on kickbacks uh, from people or corporations <laughs> like Pepsi and right. Tyson as a part of their business model. So yeah, that's exhibit A of the kind of stuff <laughs> I look at. Yeah, I mean, but it seems like okay. So the Open Market Institute, which Vice Magazine, by the way, and Vice is a great magazine, tells us is doing revolutionary and essential work when monopoly looms over American life. So why is it bad? I think mean, a lot of people would say, look, it's good, it's efficient. You have these big companies that are providing uh, reasonable quality food at a pretty low price. So what what's bad about that? Yeah, I would say uh, a lot of evidence shows that this efficiency idea is actually pretty dubious in our industry, currently being investigated by the Justice Department for price fixing, for working together to the argument, um, you know, it gets us in a lot. Uh, actually be very fragile, you know, very vulnerable to shocks in the systems. You look at like coronavirus and trade disruption and that kind of thing. Thing, um, can send these really consolidated systems tumbling apart. Um, yeah, I mean, I could go on. There's a whole lot of reasons that uh, <laughs> well, Monopoly is quite dangerous and not actually that efficient. Yeah. What would be your biggest uh, fear in terms of you know, the increasing concentration of power monopoly in, in the food or and or egg industry? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of Fears, there's plenty of fears to go around. I mean, I think fundamentally we see uh, such large accumulations of, of wealth and corporate power translates into political power. And so when I think about, you know, empowering people to stand up and ask for change and to work with regulators to try and, you know, address this system, I think the, the political power is perverse and most frightening. Um, some examples of pretty dastardly deregulation happening right now in pork slaughter that's going to lift all the processing line speeds. Um, there's been a lot of inspectors raising the alarm, sort of whistleblowing about how this could be really dangerous for food safety, you know, introducing contaminants into pork, but it's also really dangerous for slaughterhouse workers, um, you know, who already face much higher injury rates than, you know, similarly situated manufacturing workers. And so that's, yeah, a really scary full circle example of, yeah. Um, yeah. I remember in the Cory Booker article that you, you, you wrote, he's leading a bill or he was leading a bill in the Senate to get rid of factory farms. The numbers were staggering. The you know eighty. He proposed that a factory farm, a farm couldn't, or a meat packer couldn't slaughter more more than eighty five thousand birds a day to be considered like small. Two thousand for pigs. I mean, those are big numbers. Yeah, I mean, the the scale at which we're talking is already much larger than 
um, many people are aware of, you know, I think our vision of farms does not really track with what uh, food production looks like today. Yeah, there's a there's yeah. a brand image there. We think of the bucolic, you know, sort of the little farm in the valley and everything's beautiful, pristine and nice. And when in fact, you know, the, I was reading some articles about, um, about chicken farmers and how they get sucked mm-hmm. into the game by the big companies, all the promises, and then they just turn the screws uh, bit by bit to make it harder and harder. And, and you can probably see that in bank number of bankruptcies going up in, in the small farm sector. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, I think these systems, these outcomes, like factory farms is a good example. You know, farmers often don't have many other alternatives, you know, put in front of them for how they're going to raise chickens because there are so few companies that they can sell to. And those companies really control all aspects of their business decisions. You know, you contract with a company, they say, this is the house you have to use. We're going to drop off birds every week. Uh, we're also going to drop off, you know, food and medicine. Um, basically just exporting the, the most risky part of raising chickens, yeah. which is the actual growing of them, right. to farmers who have to take out all this debt and are, yeah, really under the thumb of these corporations. And that's a perfect example of, you know, what happens and the autonomy that's lost uh, when you don't have a, an alternative. You don't have a market to sell right. your chickens into. You got yeah. one local grower, you know, or local <laughs> integrator, right. as right. they're called, and that's it. Integrator, yeah. that's a fine name. Yes, because <laughs> they've integrated the whole supply chain because they have it all except for the growing. So, and, then, yeah. and then we get this lovely tasteless chicken. But anyways, mm-hmm. I, I want to <laughs> talk a little bit about that uh, when we come back from our break because, mm-hmm. you know, sort of what, what is the what's the opposite or the alternative to this kind of industrial structure within the food and ag industry. Um, But uh, let's talk about that in a bit. Uh, Gonna take a little break now. We're with uh, Claire Kellaway. She's editor and writer of Food Power, which reports on economic consolidation and monopolization in the food and agricultural industry. And uh, as a part of the show, we do a little bit of music now and we talked and she said, oh, maybe you can get some Neil Young or Willie Nelson. I did better. I got both. We're going to listen to Neil Young, Willie Nelson and Crazy Horse all along the Watchtower live at Farm Aid 94. We've got another rocker up here with us now.
So we're back with uh, Claire Kellaway of Food and Power, which reports on monopoly issues in the food industry and the agricultural industry as well. Uh, you can check out their website at uh, foodandpower.net. That's all one word, foodandpower.net. Uh, and oh, check out their blog roll too. They've got lots of good writers there talking about food and justice issues. So check them out. So Claire, we, we were talking a lot about, you know, sort of antitrust things, monopolies and all that stuff before the break. I want to go back to a quote that uh, comes from Bill Gates in the late, late 1990s. And he says, uh, rather without prescience, <laughs> this <laughs> antitrust thing will blow over. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I say he was definitely wrong in <laughs> that case. That quote um, was actually from when Microsoft was being sued uh, for antitrust violations of, um, you know, tying some of their products to other products. Uh, you know, if you want to use our computers, you have to use our software and our search browser along, you know, tying along those lines. Um, and they lost. <laughs> they lost that case. Yay. Uh, it made room for, you know, the growth of uh, alternative uh, smartphone uh, software, you know, and also browsers like Chrome. So, yeah, I mean, they were wrong then. And I think antitrust, you know, continues to be a growing topic of, of conversation and of interest now, you know, and as much as these corporations uh, would love <laughs> for these challenges to stop, I think um, <laughs> we've seen how it's created opportunity in, in the past, and I think people are going to continue pushing for it in well, the future. I mean, we, we've seen some new fires being put under the uh, antitrust, uh, under antitrust initiatives, you know, sort of holding companies thought to be dangerously monopoli monopolizing their sectors under greater and greater scrutiny. Well, that's one thing. I mean, we're putting them under greater scrutiny, but mm -hmm. I mean, are, can we see any way forward to the scrutiny being effective in terms of breaking up monopolization? Maybe we could talk about an example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot of uh, challenges <laughs> in front of us to to create that reality. It's a combination of, um, you know, this is a legal question. And so what the courts say matters and how they've interpreted antitrust law in the past matters. And there's been a bigger change in the school of thought about how we think about what is you know a problematic level of consolidation you know what are the outcomes of monopoly that we're uh in trying to enforce and trying to avoid and for the past you know three decades they've been really focused on just this narrow definition of uh consumer welfare is this monopoly is this merger um going to increase prices for consumers and we've seen how that misses you know big threats like Amazon, which actually are Walmart before Amazon, who get big and get powerful because they just lose money um, for years on end with the support of, you know, Wall Street backing until all their competition is gone. Uh, and then they can, you know, own the market and potentially increase prices, you know, and so that's a good example of where that, that theory fails and how, um, low costs in case this case predatory pricing you know could actually come back to bite us in the end and so in terms of a path forward you know how do we change that paradigm you know obviously open markets is trying to put in new legal theories about 
um, how we assess the harms of corporate consolidation. Um, it's going to definitely take new judges um, to begin, you know, thinking, of, which is hard, working with yeah, the judicial well, system the, is very hard. Yeah, um, given, so, given the current context, so, yep. And, yep, exactly. So that's definitely a bit of an existential worry for me, if we're being totally <laughs> honest. Uh, but there's obviously also um, a lot that can be done with better antitrust enforcers. You know, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, is a powerful agency that's really um, been kind of dormant and been not, yeah, uh, cracking down on some of these malpractices. Um, same with just the Justice Department. So yeah, there's a lot that can be done um, with stronger antitrust agencies, you know, could also potentially require acts of Congress, right. you know, new laws, which is possible. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a mix. Um, but no, it's not hopeless. There are things that can be done. Well, <laughs> sure. You know, yeah. one of my one of my big worries because I you know, I've been doing this corporate sustainability stuff since the '90s and and mm -hmm. and uh, sustainable and responsible investment, et cetera, et cetera, since the '90s. Mm -hmm. you, you know, and you don't see honestly. It's been, maybe in the last two years now because of climate change primarily, and the and you know, sort of the physical, the touchable manifestation of that problem is has really mm -hmm. spurred a lot of. I would say, like I was, you know, I'm 25% opti optimistic nowadays that we can solve that problem. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, three years ago, four years ago, I was, wasn't optimistic at all. But, you know, ever since I've been doing this, there's been this whole emphasis by business, particularly on self-regulation in the form mm -hmm. of, say, corporate commitment to voluntary guidelines. Like the Business Roundtable came out with uh, this uh, past August looking, okay, we're going to be sh stakeholder first, not st shareholder first. Then there's the Carbon Action 100, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, et cetera, et cetera. Do they, I mean, is that any kind of uh, compensation for regulatory initiatives or is there any hope there or does it need to be in combination? Yeah, I mean, this is really personal to me, as I said, having worked in corporate sustainability before and you know, I was interested in this field because it was really clear to me that corporations had a lot of power and they are doing, you know, right, tangible things, but often, you know, out of necessity, right? Because they're realizing you don't have things like a coffee supply chain and, oh, that affects our our bottom line. And that's, that's the issue, I guess, you know, not to discount, you know, some of the tangible progress that has been made, but it's definitely, you know, too slow. I think these corporations, you know, you can't, it's folly to expect business to act against their interests. They have every rational reason to operate within the rules of the game. And so that's why you need regulation. You know, you need to change the rules um, to push that conversation and to enact change at a, yeah. at a higher velocity. Um, yeah. So yes, in short, no, <laughs> you know, I'm glad, you know, glad that there are people on the inside trying to enact change but yeah self-regulation absolutely no. not the answer well i tell you if if i was the leader of any large co country i would definitely nationalize somebody just just to make a big message we just <laughs> we just haven't sent the message out clearly enough in my mind that mm -hmm. you know the companies have to look at their broader impact in a in a, in a way that yeah it's going to bring return expectations down from 20% to six or 7%, which is perfectly fine. Mm -hmm, but people, mm -hmm. but people don't want to, 
people don't want that. I mean, even the investors, the mom and pa investors, they want to see 20%. So I think the system is kind of rigged against us all mm-hmm. in, in many ways. So maybe you're right. I, I, I guess, and the, you know, is regulation the only remedy? Yeah, the shift towards corporate social responsibility like is good, but it's, yeah, not sufficient, you know? No, so I do think no. you need, you need both. Yeah. yeah, I think it shows the way a little bit, but I, I mm-hmm. used to be a lot, you know, the, the power of the corporation can change things quickly, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I just don't see that it's been 30 years and I'm still, I'm getting old. I want to retire. <laughs> I want to retire right. at some point. <laughs> right. but let's, let's just talk briefly before we uh, leave off. Let's talk, switch back to what we were talking about before is like how important or how large uh, of the food provision sector, shall we say, could be actually su- supplied by uh, local providers that, you know, say a couple hundred kilometers or rather miles distant from the markets that they serve. I mean, is that a, is that a vision that's just a pipe dream or is that something that could actually work uh, to feed, you know, rather large populations? Yeah. I mean, I think we see across the world how less consolidated food systems do, you know, feed their populations and have fed them uh, for for many years. I think now it's like just economically um, not very feasible given, again, how consolidated these supply chains are. Something, I think there is something to be said for how there are diseconomies of scale. And something that I'm really interested in is this middle area, you know, the mid-sized farms, but also having opportunity for small farms Um, just to decentralize some of these supply chains. We see that there are higher levels of satisfaction of, you know, grocery chains that are regional grocery chains. And there's a lot more, again, resiliency to things like natural disasters and uh, climate change um, when you have a little more diversity built into the system. And I think working on, you know, these food hubs, these aggregations, uh, grocery co-ops, um, all of these show really viable, if not, I would say superior supply chains for delivering food safely and effectively. And so, yes, I would say, you know, an alternative system is not only, uh, possible, but necessary. You know, our, our listeners are primarily people who just want to bring a little more sustainability into their life. Got a couple of tips how they might be able to do that with regards to uh, the issues that concern you and food and power? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess I'm actually personally a little dubious of consumer-based activism, which, so you're not necessarily going to hear, you know, a lot of vote with your fork messages for me, uh, though I do think, you know, supporting independent grocers, uh, independent food businesses, local farmers is certainly good. You know, it's not bad. It's not nothing. Um, But I guess per this discussion, you know, I really want to see people involved in the work of systems change, you know, thinking about um, advocating for better policies that allow these foods to be made available to to more people. Um, So I guess one specific policy, you know, there's actually a USDA rule up for comment right now regarding the Packers and Stockyards Act, which is a law that was passed at the end of the progressive era as sort of an antitrust law to curtail the powers of large meat packers. Um, Today, the meatpacking industry is actually 
more consolidated than it was when this rule was passed. Um, and yeah, there's a proposal that could codify a lot of the abusive industry practices that we were talking about earlier with chicken farmers and sort of um, other livestock farmers uh, or livestock processors rather having a lot of power over farmers. Uh, this rule could limit farmers' ability to speak up about unfair treatment, um, to you know speak up about contracts uh, unnecessarily or unjustly being canceled, really just harming farmers' basic ability to seek justice against corporate uh, abuse. And so I think it's important that this rule does not uh, fly through unnoticed. I know the news cycle is pretty crazy right now <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Right. Um, but, you know, this is really important and the public has a little under 30 days uh, to submit a comment, you know, expressing concern. So that's something that I would encourage listeners. Okay, let's do. let's get at the systemic change. Yes. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> it's been really good talking with you, Claire. We've been speaking with Claire Kellaway of Food and Power, which reports on economic consolidation and monopolization in the food and agricultural industry. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time. Yes. No, thank you for having me. It's been lovely conversation. Yeah, it's been great. Hey, Claire, can people get a hold of you on Twitter? Yes. Um, it is, I believe, just Claire Kellaway. K-E-L-L-O-W-A-Y. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> and, uh, how, and you can get uh, you can check out their website at foodandpower.net. So thanks again, Claire. Yes. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you might want to check out Garbage Food, Food Sheds, and Healthy Food Podcast with the amazing, magical, punk, local food expert, Jen DeRose of St. Louis. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields, host of The Sustainable Century. Thanks for listening. I hope you liked it. If you did, I encourage you to check out The Sustainable Century blog at thesustainablecentury.net. Remember, to click like in all the right places. Better yet, pass the blog or pass the pod along. And remember, it's up to you. It's up to us to make this a happier and healthier world.